come with us now, if you dare, down a rickety staircase into a dank, dark basement. What awaits the Saturday Night Freak Show? <laughs> Welcome back, ladies and germs, to the Saturday Night Freak Show podcast. Every Saturday night, the Freak Show happens, whether you like it or not, right here on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Pod Bay, TuneIn Radio, and more fine repositories of internet talk. These are the Saturday Night Freak Show Irregulars. Arian. Sean. And I'm Colin. And tonight it was my pick, so we watched Tenebrae. Tenebrae. Which is from 1982 and directed by Dario Argento. Okay, so we are going to talk about Tenebrae, Tenebrae fans. So, spoiler warning. But first, I'd like to talk about a flavor of movie that I have discovered in my travels. The flavor is a good word. It's an Italian flavor. It's mm. maybe an acquired taste, but it's, it's, like, called... it's like gelato. Something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's called giallo. Anybody know what giallo is in Italian? Yellow. Do you know why these movies are called giallo? Because that was the color of the books in which they were released. Like there used to be little little novels that were yellow covers and whatnot. That's very true. So these novels started in like, (laughs) it helps if you read it five minutes before the show (laughs) in the liner notes. Yeah. In the liner notes for this movie. Well, there was a company called something along the lines of like Moldavi press, Mm. and they made these books in the twenties, thirties, and maybe forties. And in uh, Italy, they were known as yellow because of the color of the, the covers and uh, they weren't like Italian written books. They were books that were written by, uh, they were thrillers, like Agatha Christie novels would be Giallo. Mm. Uh, writers like uh, Raymond Chandler, Ed McBain, uh, Rex Stout, um, Ellery Queen, those uh, type Ellery of, Queen. of uh, you know, like mystery thrillers, right? They're whodunits. I've read a few Ellery Queens in my day. And somewhere in the 19, I want to say it was in the 60s, maybe like 63, I think the official, we acknowledge that the beginning of the filmic giallo um, genre began with Mario Bava. He made a movie called The Girl Who Knew Too Much, mm-hmm. which starred, ironically, John Saxon, who's also in... Oh, really? Tenebrae. Uh, so... So he had a liking for these movies. Yeah. Um, so... The so you say to yourself, well, what makes a giallo movie a giallo? Black gloves. That's one. POV of the killer. That's two. Weird ass twists. That's three. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy looking sets and lots of boobies. Red blood. Very red blood. Yes. Yes. This predates the slasher movie. Like the so the American slasher film kind of gave or, you know, became a thing in, like, the 1980s, mm-hmm. right? And you say the slasher window ran from, like, you know, whatever, Halloween maybe in 78 until maybe, like, 1983 or 1984. I mean, it was, like, the the, the greatest collection of this Right, stuff. the concentration of it. Where the same thing happens with Giallo. Uh, they start in, like, I mean, really, like, 68 or something like that. They come into their own, and they peak in, like, 71, 72, Dozens of these things are made in Italy. So what um, is the peak? 
I think it's seven. It's like 72, 71, 72. And then they kind of. What movie is considered the peak of this? If we're getting to uh, Tenebrae in 82 and even before that, uh, what what do we watch? Deep Red and before this, um, what what, what is the peak if it's in the early 70s? Well, Dario Argento made a movie called The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that was 70, 70 or 71. And I think that's widely acknowledged as the moment that, like, the giallo came into its own, kind of. Mm. Um, he used, uh, like, an international star at the time. It was a guy named Tony Masante, I think. Like, so he was an American actor, but brought him over. Because most of the giallos that, you know, we watched were... You know, I mean, they'd still like use a continental cast, but right. you know, mostly, I mean, they made like a star out of uh, Edwige Fennec, who became like the queen of the Giallo movie. She was in several of them, uh, Barbara Boucher, George Stevens. Um, but when Bird with the Crystal Plumage was released, it became like a hit, like everywhere. I mean, across you know, even in America, and so that was, I think, like. You know, maybe all the other ones that came seventy one, seventy two were like trying to cash in on that. Sure, but uh, dozens and dozens of these movies, all of them share like the same kind of qualities. They're all shot, you know, in uh, in around. Well, it seems like you know most of them take place in Italy. You have like an old uh, old world kind of look to them, but you've also got like a modern day nightlife kind of, you know. Uh, there's usually a killer who's uh, psychosexual motivation for killing people. You don't find out who it is until the very end. There's a twist mm. and there's lots of uh, very beautiful uh, women in the movies, usually as the victims. Uh, and about high a fashion. third of the time they're all naked. Yeah. Yeah. There's some <laughs> I mean, of them that go if like, you're going to have yeah. them in there. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you watch enough of these things and you're like, man, you know, there's something to them, even though their plots make absolutely no sense. Sometimes they don't. Yes. A lot of times. A lot of times. Which I think is why the Argento giallos kind of stand out from the other ones, because, well, I'm not going to say that his necessarily make a whole lot of sense all the time. There's some coherency. Yeah, he. it seems like he try, He works a little harder on the writing to get the plot to kind of line up a little more than a lot of the others. I mean, some of the directors kind of focus on the gore, some focus on the sex. He kind of seemed to focus on the plot a little more, which makes him a little easier to understand. Well, there's less... I mean, like, when you watch the other giallos, the other giallos, you know, generally have, like, a more 60s liberated view of sexuality. I think that's why there's, like, so much nudity in them. But Argento is, like, relatively restrained compared to the other ones, you know? But, uh, I mean, there's always some kind of, like, deviancy or uh, aberration, I guess, to his character's psychological, you know, um, point of view but mm. i suppose that's true when you have like any kind of you know sure. insane homicidal you know <laughs> killer um i think he likes to play with his characters because even the side characters and a lot of them have little twists to their characters i mean nobody in his films is really played like a normal character would they're all just a little bit weird 
You're talking about it, like even the bit players, little yeah, characters yeah. in the background and all that still right. have some kind of like personality quirk that makes them usually humorous, it seems like, right? <laughs> right. But that makes it stand out, you know, they're they're unusual. Um That just reminds me of that scene in Tenebrae. <laughs> I think there's a quick shot of two people at the bar. It's like, when are you going to photograph me? Ah, never. It's fuck off. Yeah, you said like there's, that, like, there's like a yeah, whole you Yeah, know, story you get the there. whole story of those people right there. Just like, oh, all right, that's nice. It's a nice little <laughs> little sprinkling of seasoning in this movie. I thought that was enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that the Jalo movies are known for is their crazy titles. Mm. Uh, some of them, you know, go way out of their way to, you know, just like the black belly of the tarantula. Or, you know, like I said, the aforementioned. The, and there uh, are no tarantulas in that movie. Uh I don't remember. I think it's metaphorical. It's the killer a, has was a web, you know, that catches ah, people in sure. you know, all the colors of the dark, I think, is like one of my favorite titles just because it sounds dark. awesome. Was um, there an actual bird with crystal plumage in the bird with crystal plumage? Which always reminds me of the title, The Maltese Falcon. Yeah, yeah, right? There's, I think there's one, uh, There's a. it's like an art object on somebody's mm-hmm. desk, like maybe in the killer's lair or something like that. There is a bird with the... Oh no! It's the the sound that eventually triggers the. Uh, it helps them catch the killer. There's a bird outside of like the house, and they hear the recording or something like that. Uh, right. My memory on it's not all that. <laughs> all that bird uh, repeat it back, and they're just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The blood stained shadow. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I mean, so they had these really baroque titles where you know you had some kind of combination of a number, uh, an animal, a color. And then some kind of like I don't know what you'd say would be the fourth, the fourth uh, like abstract thing. I know the one the one title, which is the Dario Argento movie, which color covers like all the quadrants, is Four Flies on Gray Velvet. Mm. So you've kind of got you know everything in there. It's magical, magical title. So uh, <laughs> there should be like an uh, was there? Wait, no, there was, wasn't there? Like a Giallo name. A generator somewhere on the internet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah you, just, you just come up with some random shit like I use that blue tears of the night or something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right. So uh, stay tuned later for before we do the uh, before we summon Igor for the mailbag. I went on the random Jello oh, generator did- <laughs> and I generated some titles. So I'm going to mix in. We're going to have a little quiz. We're going to have some Uh-oh. real Jalo titles and some fake Jalo titles, and we're going to see if Arian and Sean can tell which ones are which. Um, but this, so uh, Argent, Dario Argento, uh, did you know that he started off, you know who Ber- Bernardo Bertolucci is? I've heard the name. Last yeah. Tango in Paris? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And The Last Emperor and all that. So the, uh, the Dreamers? Did you do Dreamers? He did the Dreamers. He did the yeah. Dreamers, yep. So he and Argento. So Argento was uh, his father was a producer in the Italian movie industry, and Dario got his start as a film critic, and then he worked up and then became a screenwriter. And with Bernardo Bertolucci, they wrote Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in, in the West. West. So that was the thing that actually started Dario Argento. Then he got his uh, directing opportunity with The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. It became a huge deal, and so they were like. You know, it fired off the whole the, the giallo trend, and it was like, okay, we need you know make more of these. So he made in quick order: Bird with a Crystal Plumage, uh, The Cat of Nine Tails, Four Flies on Gray Velvet. These are now regarded as his animal trilogy. <laughs> he made a comedy called Five Days in Milan. Nobody went to see. So then he came back and did Deep Red, 
or Profondo Rosso, which Profondo. many people regard as the best giallo ever made. Damn, really? I would regard it as his maybe best. Definitely up there. Yeah. It's I mean, there's like usually when you talk Argento, it's either Deep Red or Suspiria jockeying for, you know, yeah, the best career I best. But, uh, you know, he, he followed Deep Red. Well, I guess, like, it's like, what is what does Deep Red do that, like... Why does it stand out? Yeah, because it catalogs a certain... I mean, it, it like, what do you call that? When you take, like, uh, you know, something, you're setting it in stone, basically. It's right. like, after that, this is what a giallo right. is. It's setting a standard for... Yeah, it contextualizes it. No. Yeah. Catalogs it. No, something. looking for a word. Well, and I can't had a... You know, I mean, there's always, the like, the clues that go through, and it, half of them either don't make sense or you don't get them till towards the end when they're getting ready to show you who the killer is. And in Deep Red, like, the m- clue, you see at the very beginning, and they don't put any emphasis on it whatsoever. But when it comes together at the end, it's brilliant Mm -hmm. yeah and this is also deep red is one of those movies where i think and i mentioned this to sean earlier it's like i think it's one of those movies that is in danger of being ruined by the the video era because this is a movie shot in a time when you couldn't go rent the thing afterwards there was no there was no rewind button so Mm. he uses that in a way where you see the, the clue you actually see the murderer early on in the movie in a in a flash, so you're not sure that what you actually saw. Yes. But it, you know, in today's world, I think you'd go, "Wait, I saw something." Hit pause, rewind, and then you'd be staring at the face of the murderer. Where right. I think you know it works if you if you just play it like you know there is no stopping this thing. You keep going. It puts you in the headspace of the protagonist, and I think this is one of the things that uh, Argento does that kind of defines his style. Is he usually has uh a character who somehow has the clue to solving the entire thing and is like playing memory games with himself it's like i saw something but i don't know what it is but that can be right the audience has seen from the lead character's point of view yeah uh you know the killing or or something you also witness the exact same thing so it's almost kind of asking it's like interactive in that way where yeah. you have to like try and figure out like well i saw the exact same thing he did right yeah it's just watching deep red like uh, that was yeah that's the thing you know you, you get that same image they do and you're just like then i i saw something you kind of file it away as you're watching the movie like well i think it's this but let's see where they're going like yeah definitely puts you in there with them yeah you have to do some mental gymnastics. Yeah, you do, because like, you're going back later on going, kind of thinking the same thing. The character's like, I saw something in the mirror. Yeah. Like, that's got to play somehow, <laughs> it because was it wasn't him. When you were, because you're like, <laughs> oh, wait a second. He couldn't have been there. He couldn't be the killer, because he was there at the end, like, a minute later, the guy in right. the movie. You're is playing like, the same game. It's, you're like, couldn't, it's impossible. He was there, and she was down there, and that person was down there yeah. at the same time. Hmm. Well, and it's also kind of cool, because it actually sets up a reason for this character to want to continue looking into this thing, which is something that drives me crazy with all the Giallo movies is the protagonist is never a cop or detective or anybody who has any reason 
to be investigating mm-hmm. these or murders. to be that invested in finding this stuff. Yeah, out. exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's like I get to be a detective today. Yeah, it's uh-huh. like none of them ever makes sense, but you know, at least for Deep Red, that character and the way that it played out, it actually made sense because you are put into his eyes, you could see where it would drive you crazy that I saw something, something's going on. You could actually see why he was investigating it. Mm-hmm. I think that's another hallmark of the genre also is the, the amateur detective, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think that even goes back to Agatha Christie, Rex Stout, yeah. you know, all, you know, it's like, those are the, that is like a, a trademark of that, that type of story where in Jalo usually it seems like the lead character is an artist or works yeah. somehow in the art world, photographer, pianist, writer, painter, writer. Right. You know. And a lot of the times it seems like they're traveling, you know, they're not permanently stationed where they're at. Mm-hmm. They just happen to be there at the right time. Yeah. They're always visiting like a foreign country or, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's like, it, well, I mean, Suspiria is kind of, you know, is it a giallo? You know, kind of, but you know, you have an American in Germany, or in Deep Red, you have an American in in Rome, uh, Tenebrae, an American in Rome. You have an Algerian woman, Edwige uh, Fenech, is Algerian, so she's in Italy, I think. You know, for uh, uh, all the colors of the dark. I mean, they're all like you know, passing through, mm. and while they're there, they become you know, witness to something or the target of a killer or uh, Hitchcock's favorite character, the man falsely accused. They yes. end up, you know, it's like, it's you. And the cops are following you, you know, mm-hmm. you're the guy who did it when you're like, I didn't actually do it. I was just, you know, I saw it happen. <laughs> but yeah. uh, There's a lot of uh, talk that, you know, because they are suspense thrillers, that they borrow a lot of the language, the film language of Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. Or maybe Argento more than the others because he was known for a while as the Italian Hitchcock. Um, I mean, well, I see in some ways, you know, it's like, did he borrow it from Hitchcock or did he borrow it from Sergio Leone? You know, all the use of close-ups and stuff like that are are shots used in Sergio Leone westerns, right? The Fistful of Dollars and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that Argento seems to use that Hitchcock also used is the, the roving camera where the camera is almost seems to be a character unto itself where you'll have two characters framed up. They'll have a conversation, they'll walk away and then the camera will take off independently and go over and show you the audience, something that the characters are unaware of Yeah, or it'll leave the characters while they're talking about something. It's like the camera decides this isn't important and wanders over and goes and looks at something else or sees the killer coming in or, you know. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and I believe it was Tenebrae or maybe it was Deep Red. There was at one point, yeah, it was Deep Red. There was at one point where the, no, sorry, it was Tenebrae. The camera moves from um, looking at one woman to outside the house goes completely around the outside of the house, the oh, roof, yeah, the windows, shot. the walls, 
And that's like, what, three minutes of mm, nothing but the shot. camera moving around the outside of the house. There's nothing to see. Super There's nothing going on. No reason for that shot other than they must have thought it was cool or something. Yeah, it calls attention to itself. It's like, look how showy I am. Yeah. I mean, it kind of does because there's no, like, there's, there's no ending to, to it. It's just like, oh, you did it for that. It's just like, oh, we kind of, like a cut. Going mm-hmm. from where they show, where they start off to where they end, like could have, like, yeah, and they're not telling us anything new or giving us any information with that shot. Yeah, it's kind of a glorified, like, we're going to go all over the place. Yeah, and it's not and like putting you in the eye of a killer or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, because he's not it's scaling just, the building and coming down. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just there for the sake of, I guess, showing off the camera. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's like, it's interesting. Well, once you actually see the thing put together with the camera move associated with the music. Uh, mm-hmm. because Argento worked with the rock band Goblin uh, for a while, and they broke up or something. So Claudio Simonetti, who was a part of Goblin, did the music for Tenebrae. So it's uh, we, we say it's basically Goblin music. <laughs> sure. But it's loud on the soundtrack. Uh, and so you're listening to, like, this disco track or something on the soundtrack as this camera's prowling over the top of the house and looking in the windows. And I guess you just – it creates suspense because you're like – you know, like it's we just weird, right? You yeah. start at a window with a woman in the window, and then you pan up and crawl over the house and look in some windows, spying on the girl upstairs, and eventually coming down to rest on the killer, gaining access to the, uh, you know, bottom window on the other oh, side. Oh, yeah, it does end up with that. Just, yeah, cutting into the blinds and everything and going in. Yeah. I suppose so. It does kind of end up with something uh, substantial. I take that back. Well, I looked at it because I was curious about that shot because it's one of those, you know, because it calls attention to itself. You're like, how in the hell did they do that? I mean, do they have a crane? Oh, they arm must have had a crane enough? like at a corner of the house. It was on the the crane is actually on a platform. So you're already halfway up the house. Mm-hmm. And so it can drop down and swing. Up. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, because it goes like it's, it's and it has to be at the corner because it can go up one side, hit the roof that it's that it's uh, that it goes over and then come down on the other side. And peek into the side of the house. It had to be at the corner. Well, and when it gets to the roof, it, like, takes a while looking at the roof. But then it does this extreme close-up of the tiles mm-hmm. on the roof. And mm-hmm. I always kind of wonder if they use that to mess with the set a little bit and turn things around. I think I don't there's... Know if I had, like, Well, you the, can actually... You can see uh, the making of that shot is in a documentary. It's on YouTube. Ooh. It's called Dario Argento's World of Horror. There's two really good uh, documentaries on him. There's World of Horror and an, an Eye for Horror, uh, which, you know, detail the making of a couple of his movies and interviews and all this stuff. But that one actually has, like, behind-the-scenes footage of making uh, moments from Suspiria and, uh, and Tenebrae. Nice. So you can actually see the crane rig and all that stuff that they use. But, I mean, I guess we're talking about that because it's like the style, uh, Argento's style so defined the giallo genre that, you know, it's like, I mean, he's the guy who, I mean, he's made his entire career out of making like almost one type of movie, you know, and trying to, and I mean, he writes a lot of them too, but, you know, trying to come up with the twist that you're like, holy crap, you know, like that's, you know, unusual and weird. And, you know, he hasn't done it before. And, you know, uh, yeah. So Tenebrae is a movie about a writer. His name is Peter Neal. He's an American author and he moves to, or he's visiting Rome mm. to promote his latest yeah, book on his press tour. Now, 
I said this earlier, but now you're going to have to see if this uh, jibes or not. That uh, I think Tenebrae is to the Jalo genre what Scream or maybe In the Mouth of Madness, which are you know two recent shows that we did. You yes. can look them up on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, it is like the it's the postmodern dissection of the Giallo movie. Mm. True or false? True. I I was thinking to myself that uh, Scream kind of stole a bit of the plot of Tenebrae. Because it's a... Uh, well, I mean, because when Scream came out, you know, everybody was like wigging out at the end because they had two killers instead of just the one. And everybody thought that was brilliant and clever, but Tenebrae had done that, you know, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So it, Scream wasn't being original and doing it. They were stealing it from another movie. It's almost like it looks at, it it gives you like the classic giallo from, for like the first part of the movie and then kind of goes off into a different version of it. Cause the first part, I mean, there's a different, again, spoiler alerts. There's like an original killer, um, the TV host who who killed the women, and then it kind of goes off from that. Well, like, well, he's dead, and people are still getting murdered. Yeah. So it kind of feels like tell that. you that though. You no. don't know that until the end. Right. The it's like it's giving you that, but also kind of playing with the expectations of mm-hmm. what is considered classic Jalo. So it definitely could be. Well, I think the fact that it's like it's and maybe like it also shares something with Wes Craven's uh, New Nightmare, where you have a filmmaker making a movie about a guy who writes horror stories mm. or thriller stories, right? And finds himself in the plot of a horror novel. Mm-hmm. So it's making comments on, I think, like, you know, our horror movie or horror authors, horror, you know, storytellers responsible? responsible for the actions of uh, their, their audience. Re- their yeah. audience. Because the movie is about a, uh, you know, there's a, a copycat killer or, a, you know, he gets in Rome. This guy goes to Rome and finds out that there are murders happening where the killer is copying He's, murders that have happened in his book. Right. Canterbury. And quoting them and sending them those in little letters under his door. Yeah. So he's basically saying to the author, the killer saying to the author, it's like, look, I'm doing this almost to honor you. Yes. You wrote and showed me the, how to do it. And so now I'm doing it. It's and uh, you know the killer's motivation is he, the way he interprets the book. Right, it's, he's taking his interpretation and going by that, which is what, which is that uh, uh, I think eliminating what does he call them perverts, like the perversion, like he's finding those people and eliminating them. It kind of seems. Yeah. Well, he kills that first girl. Is a thief. Uh, oh yeah, the Possibly the shoplifter. We're yeah. not entirely sure. Yeah, she's got like twelve prior shoplifting or. Yeah. And she gets caught stealing the Tenebrae book. Yeah. She gets off in one of the ways that can only be Italian. <laughs> Maybe she... I give you my number and, you, you know, for later. <laughs> okay. It's like, okay. So she gets busted, busted, caught shoplifting, red-handed. Dude takes her back into his office. She propositions him, mm. gives him her home address, and he's like, okay. And he okay. gives her the book. It's like, yeah, he shoves the book back in the purse. Like, here you go, on, on your way. Take the book. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, you can get away with that. I can get away with that. <laughs> yeah. And then the second uh, murders are a pair of uh, lesbian lovers, one of whom may be a prostitute. Maybe. We're not entirely sure. 
Yeah, I don't think The third murder is a... Uh, she's a girl that Peter Neal happens to know personally. Well, I guess he knew personally one of the lesbians. Uh, she was a the, critic. Yeah, she's a critic who's always, like, before that, always been nice about his, his work and suddenly in his press tour uh, kind of attacks him on his kind of his themes or, his, or that, his motivations for writing the book, Tenebrae. Well, I think that was what put her on the murderer's radar. Because he was because, there at the time. Yeah, originally, yeah, when the author first comes to town, you know, there's a you know, welcome party and the killer happens to be at that party and you know, he's just kind of not talking, standing in the corner watching what's going on, and this woman comes in as as a writer and she's known the author for a while and they've had a great relationship, but she like immediately pounces on him mm. for the way he treats the women in his latest novel. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to assume that that is criticism. Like what she says is probably like verbatim criticism that Argento has has gotten. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be. Yeah. Well, that would make sense because it's true. Well, he did say a, well, I don't know. The quote, has he commented on that? Shown. He's had, there's a quote that I remember reading in an issue of Cinefantastic back Ooh, in I bet that's when this exists. came out. Uh, it's online now. Ah. I think I still have the issue. It was about this movie. Um, but he said something to the effect of uh, that he prefers to look at beautiful women and he would prefer a, you know, if he was going to kill someone in his movies, he prefer that it would be a beautiful woman rather than an ugly one. <laughs> and so that quote has basically been taken and used like in years since as like proof of Dario Argento's okay, misogyny. Well, let's be honest. If you know, e- even myself speaking as a female, if I'm watching a horror movie, chances are it's going to be a woman getting killed or a man, but if it's a woman, it's you almost always a pretty woman. And I think a big reason for that, aside from the obvious sexual part, is because there's more emotion involved. You know, people don't like to see something beautiful get destroyed. I think know? that's what it is. I'm glad to hear you say that. Somebody, I seriously think that that's... It is. And somebody you said You have more today, empathy for a female character in Jeopardy somehow, right? Yeah. Than, and <laughs> even, like, even good-looking. Because somebody said today, like, I was reading this, this ironic, this comes up, but somebody said today, like, that, I mean, that's why, like, Hollywood movies cast, I mean, cast uh, actors and actresses who are good-looking people. Like, because, I mean, the regular public kind of pays... To see that, like yeah. in the situations they're in, like, at some level, at we some have level, to like that is all fantasy. The, yeah. You know, it's like even I mean, you it's have the to. most realistic scenario, but everybody looks like you know everyone's perfectly pretty <laughs> and everything. But yeah. I mean, like that's I mean, we kind of like that's something we go to see. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, uh, is he misogynistic? There's so much that he does. It seems like even like his treatment of homosexuals in in the two movies that we watched uh, is, I think, for the time, like, you know, I mean, because in Deep Red, David Hemming's friend ends up being gay and Mm. it's just kind of like, okay, you're gay, you know, and this is 1975. Right. You know, which I have to imagine was kind of probably a big shock. Yeah. Even yeah, because even the character. uh, 
Carlos. Carlos. In Deep Red. The one, uh, his friend who ends up being gay. Carlos. 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 Yeah, he's in like, doesn't he, uh, I mean, he uses the F word. It's like, you just thought I was some. Yeah, I'm. Like, yeah, at some point, didn't he? Like, like, even he's Yeah, he was drunk on the bed. He's like, not only am I a drunk, I'm a faggot to boot or something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's transgressive, I think, in its politics, sexual politics for 1975, because, you know, well, Well, they had a transvestite (laughs) open the door. And this is going to spoil deep red. (laughs) But it does turn out that uh, Carlo is, you know, well, he's never actually the killer. But at the end, he's the guy who's, you know, like, I'm going to kill you because you saw my secret. presented as the killer. Yeah. So maybe that's not such a great, you know. (laughs) It's also kind of interesting because you're hearing, um, I think it was two detectives discussing the profile of the killer and they were saying that it's a psychosexual maniac Mm -hmm. is the killer. And when you're presented with Carlo as the killer that fits him, but then it turns out that it's not him at all. Yeah. It's something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's tricky, but I don't know. Maybe it's not as progressive as I thought. It was, but... Well, for the time that that movie was made, you yeah, know. it's still I'm probably just to even deal with it. I don't know. I mean, like, uh, I don't know if later on in his career, when he was kind of promoting his daughter Asia to uh, the starring roles, that's a more famous daughter. Yeah, she becomes, well, because the other one's like Fiori and she was yeah. in, you know, like Demons or whatever. But uh, Asya becomes a more, uh, like a stronger female protagonist, right? Because yeah. prior to that, it was uh, Dario's girlfriend, Daria Nicolodi, who was in Deep Red. She's in uh, Tenebrae. She's in Phenomena. Uh, She's in Inferno. She's in like one scene in Suspiria, so it doesn't count. But you can kind of see, I've read it once, that like you can see the deterioration of their relationship based on how he killed, like she lives (laughs) through Deep Red, but he starts killing her in more and more, you know, uh, tough ways throughout the the movies. And then eventually replaces her with the daughter. (laughs) It's like gone. Becomes like his avatar in the later later films. but yeah, so the uh, the the killings in in uh, Tenebrae, we left off with um, the service girl, right? Yes. she was the the hotels she gets attacked by the like you said the most well trained dog in cinema history. Oh yeah, 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 this Doberman Pinscher that can scale walls and yeah, uh, fences, it's a talented and dog. But she is a, a deviation from the murder pattern because she was a victim of uh, opportunity. Or, yeah, circumstance, because she stumbles upon the killer's hidden lair by accident. Mm. And so he has to make a deviation from his plan to kill her. And then that's what seems to bring the focus, you know, on to the killer. Yes. Because, uh, you know, he's been... Uh, Three blocks away from... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right in his neighborhood. Yeah, right in his neighborhood she is killed. And so they're like... <clears throat> And that's where you were talking about earlier, like kind of the meta sense of uh, uh, the author in his own story. Like even in, at that point, I think he like him 
uh, Anne is uh, his secretary. Yeah, yeah. Anne is secretary. And uh, what's the his the servant boy? Uh, Gianni. Gianni. Yeah, Gianni. Like they all sit down, and, like try and figure out at this point. They become yeah. the detectives and see like how right. how does this work? Yeah, that's the medicine's ability coming in, and they and they go like they're like it's killed three blocks from his house, and so they like go off and investigate. Mm-hmm. I like the way the police detective is also uh, you know involved in this you know little circle. They're trying to, you know, crack this case, but he says, you know, I've read all your all your books and I can yes. never figure out who did it. And I'm a detective. <laughs> yeah. But uh yeah, so it is at this point that in the film where uh Peter Neal and Gianni or Gianni? It's like the Italian of Gianni, Gianni. right? Gianni. Well they don't do hard J's. Right. So they go to investigate who Peter Neal believes is the killer, which is a uh, a fan of his and a, a talk show host named Cristiano Lamberto or something like something this. Close. And so the, it's really carefully staged uh, in a way that obscures what is actually happening at this point in the movie, because Cristiano has been the murderer, yeah. has been the devoted fan says when he is confronted by a figure that we don't see, uh, you know, I did it. I killed them all, but you, it's in the rain and you can't hear it all that Mm -hmm. well. And then he gets hit in the head with an ax. And so you're like, well, you don't, then he, this can't be the killer. This is another victim. They thought he was potentially a suspect, but he's just a victim. And then when Gianni, you know, because from Gianni's point of view, he doesn't see who actually killed the guy. Mm-hmm. And when he run, comes running back to where Peter Neal is, Peter's been hit on the top of the head. He's bleeding, and he says, the killer cold-cocked me and, you know, ran off. And there's an interesting scene that if you know what's going on, where uh, they get into Gianni's VW bug or whatever. It's very small and, Neil, and Peter Neal's like, did you see him? Did you see the killer? And, you know, he's fishing. <laughs> At that right. point, if you read it right, it's like he's fishing to find out <laughs> if Johnny saw him yeah, do saw. it. So the psychology of Peter Neal is what? It's tied back to somehow in his past in Rhode Island uh, when he was in school. Yes. there's Because he, he keeps having these flashbacks. We don't know whose flashbacks they are. We, right. just assume we assume they're the killers, killer. yeah. You go into the movie assuming there's one killer. So it's like, wait, who is doing what? But well, why don't you explain what we're seeing there? I mean, the first flashback is a it's a woman and she's teasing like a group of young boys. She's and they're walking down the like beachside and everything, and you know she's slipping off her dress, showing off, and they they all it's it's very weird because she like gets down on her knees and they all just like crotch first right into her, and then uh, and the you killer never see their faces. No, you, you never see their see, faces. Like, men's legs. That's right. all you ever see. Mm-hmm. And then uh, who we assume like the killer comes up, and for some reason he gets very angry at this this behavior and everything, and he slaps her, and then he runs off, and the other boys chase him down and tackle him and get him like splayed on the ground and hold him down, and she comes along, this woman, and sticks her red heel like like in his mouth. And just, you know, and is she's punishing him for obviously hitting her. But are we supposed to read that as something more invasive? Is that oral rape? I mean, I'm sure there was that motivation behind it. It's, it felt like, I mean, just based on the staging of the men and, and, and her, it mm-hmm. kind of feels like that's what it is. So it's on. like uh, something this this then this moment of humiliation is what it, breaks the mind of the 
Yeah. Well, Doesn't well, help. Who we know is now right. later is Peter Neal. Right. <clears throat> okay, so is that how it's supposed to be read? Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I can mean, see a few different ways of reading that, and I never I mean, it's embarrassing. which it's... way it was supposed to be read, or if this was just his mind, you know, forcing out his hatred against women, that they use their sexuality to humiliate men. I never understood it. I thought those flashbacks didn't make any sense. I didn't think I mean, they you were. Could, you could look at it that way. Like she uses her sexuality to draw those boys in and then ends up humiliating the one. I mean, that's, I mean, that's for some reason. Well, she's he like doesn't, controlling the boys. But he, yeah, except for him. Yeah. He's the one that like her lure isn't working on her. He sees through it or something. Right. Doesn't or, like it. Doesn't approve. And so then they attack him. Uh, would it disturb you the to learn that the actress was a chan- transgender actress? That's a man, man. It wouldn't even oh. surprise me. She looked kind of weird, especially yeah. her nose. You look at the wrists, very thick wrists. I can't tell. But I might couldn't tell. Then, you know, apparently, so the character Peter Neal had gone back and murdered her later, and yeah, so this the is second the second flashback. That's the moment that crystallizes, I guess, that he's a you know psychotic, right? And so then, throughout the entire movie, he's been popping pills uh, to, I guess, well, I mean, what it's the headaches, right? He's trying to control the headaches that he gets because we see some shadowed figure. Like doing the oh, oh right, right, right. He has is the, the I almost visions. forgot that part. I'm yeah, like popping pills. Too. I'm like, what the I, fuck are you talking I about? It's like, oh yeah, was... we get the silhouette of the the craziness and and yeah. the water and the pills. That's right. Yeah, I I always attributed that to the critic killer. Right, but well, you're supposed too. to. Right, but that's actually I think that's actually Peter Neal. Like, what's the movie's over? You realize uh, you know that's right, him right, right, the right. whole time, and then. Red shoes as well. That's once the uh, yeah, well, what one... was up with the red shoes? Well, the woman. I mean, he sends the. Uh, I think the connection is. I think the woman who shoved her heel in his mouth. She was wearing the red shoes, mm-hmm. and I think the way he felt about her. That's why he sends Jane the red shoes. This is his fiance. This is his for, uh, f- former fiance. Well, the cops said still? it was his fiance, but they seem to be on the outs. And yeah, he realizes really that Jane, his fiance, is having an affair with his agent, right. John Saxon. So the the humiliation he kind of felt from the woman in the flashback wearing the red shoes, I think he also feels the same thing towards Jane. Mm-hmm. That's why he sends her the red shoes. Because she's cheating on him. Because she's cheating on him. So the humiliation, like he's transferring that to her. Oh, you know what? Now you could actually see... That first, the line of dialogue that he has with her when he's on the phone at the airport, he mm-hmm. says, Jane, the reason I haven't talked to you in six weeks is, and then that gets cut off. Yeah. And then he has to do the, I'm just going to hang up. I'm going to hang up. I'm going to hang up. And, but what if he finished that line and it was because I found out about you and right. uh, uh, John Saxon? In which case, he would know the whole time that he's going over there. He's been humiliated. Right. right? So he's like, I don't want to talk to her or have anything to do with her anymore. And the fact that there is a killer out there uh you know that he finds out about before the cops do he Mm -hmm. realizes who the killer is he kills the killer Mm -hmm. and then says now i have an opportunity to kill jane and her lover and they'll blame it on on the previous one the killer because they don't know he's dead see i would have left the killer alive until after i had killed jane and 
Well, yeah, but I, it's like, was he thinking that far ahead? I have to assume, like, because the cop is like buddy buddy with him at this right. point. The cop mm-hmm. is telling him, like, you need to get out of town. And he's like, well, I want to get out of town because I just killed a couple people. And you're telling me to get out. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Paris or something. I'm going to be safe because the killer, this is the other thing that, you know, the killer, the first killer uh, targets Peter Neal by calling him and sending him the messages. So, you know, he's actually taunting him on the phone. This is actually what inspired the movie. Uh, Argento family was in uh, L.A., doing a press tour for whatever it must've been in Suspiria or Inferno and started getting calls from a fan that got, you know, more and more disturbing. He said he moved to like somewhere down in like uh, Venice beach or something like that. And then a week later, the call started up again. And so he was disturbed with this. He took off and went back to Rome and this kind of fed into the idea of, uh, of this movie. <clears throat> but yeah, once, you know, so, so Peter Neal now, we have established, or the movie hasn't, but we're establishing that he is a killer and has been since he was younger. Now having this opportunity, kills these people and is like going to take off and go uh, to Paris. There's a scene, I think, where he's dropped off at the airport and we see a shot of a plane flying away. Right. So we're like, okay, well, you never gone. see him on the plane. No, you're always <laughs> assuming like, well, there's the plane. Yeah. He's so, on that one. But at that point in the movie, you're still left going, well, who's the killer? Because yes. we think, you know, the first time I think you go through this movie, you're, you're like, okay, there's these people who are dying all over the place. You can't really figure out a motive. You know, what is going on? Now, Peter Neal has left. Like, who's actually doing the killings? Right. And the only people that it seems like they direct your attention toward are... Uh, Jane, the fiance, who we know mm-hmm. is in town because John Saxon gets killed. Yes, he does. Uh, we don't see who kills him. Somebody no. stabs him in the gut. And he was and waiting then, for Jane to show up. But we don't know that. Well, I th- oh, think we, we do. do. We do. I think we do know that. Because they were going to arrange to meet for lunch. Right. Uh, he's waiting for her to show up. After he gets killed, like, she does show up because you see the red heels and the dress, and she shows up to see him dead and then moves on. Mm-hmm. Like, to kind of give you that, like, little push, like, oh, maybe she did it. Right, because we see the red shoes, right. we figure this is the right. person who actually but killed you, him. But if you look at the flashbacks, like, it's obviously, I mean, if you're going to take anything out of the flashbacks, it's like, well, this is probably our killer, I mean, and it's got to be a man, because obviously, you know, uh, it's the the boy who got embarrassed with a heel in the mouth, and it's obviously a man who killed the woman um, in the second flashback. Mm-hmm. So you got to figure it's a man at that point, if you're, yeah. if you're really looking at it. But they do kind of put the put it on Jane, especially with the red heels. Yeah, but that gets it kind of explained later. And she invites the uh, the secretary, um, you know, Daria Nicolotti, and over to the house. Yes, where you know where she's know sitting there waiting with myself. a gun. She is, and it's like you know we've established that Jane is unstable because we know this because she sees a psychiatrist or a therapist yes. or something like that, right? And she's flown all the way to Rome for whatever the hell I guess the right. rendezvous with the agent. Yes. She waits with a gun, which I guess I read this time. I suppose it's because you know she saw John Saxon dead. Right. She figures somebody is also coming after her. See, but it still doesn't make any sense though because. She calls and asks specifically for Anne to come over and talk to her. So she knows that Anne is on her way. So the way it's presented with her holding in the gun, you're left wondering, what, is she going to try to kill Anne? Yeah. 
Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you get that because with the like kind of the suspicion that's been thrown on her with, yeah. from John Saxon being dead and to see her sitting there with a gun, like you're still thinking like, yeah. I mean, they're kind of making it obvious for us. She now. may have killed John Saxon. Right. For all we know. She had the for red shoes know. and they were there. And- right. So with the gun, you're just like, oh, she's going to kill Anne. Yeah. But she's really just like paranoid. Yeah. Because she saw John Saxon just like somebody else, like somebody's killing people. I could be next. I need to protect myself. Yeah. And part there we. The, sorry, go ahead. Part of the problem is that the, the acting isn't all that great. So you can't tell from her acting skills, you know, if she's like gearing up to kill somebody or if she's just scared and needs But help. I think that's the point they're driving home like they don't want you to know right. what she's doing they want you to, they want you to be guessing yeah this is like is she or is she what's, like, what's going on like is it this obvious she's gonna try and kill her is she i mean you look back at now you're like oh she's paranoid because of yeah. the stuff that happened before and then this sets up one of i think the greatest murder scenes <laughs> in movie history it's i mean really just, good it's you know she's sitting in front of this plate glass window and the axe comes down on her arm and then she sprays a geyser <laughs> of blood on this red blood on a white wall white wall yeah mm. i mean it's just fan- i mean it's one of those moments where you're like it's hideous but this is like visually a beautiful <laughs> shot. you know uh red blood on a Bloody white wall arts. just kind of going across the thing i mean it's really something mm-hmm. to look at and you're like who came up with i mean i guess that's why you know it's the flair and the style yeah, yeah very of, uh, inventive murder scenes yeah i'd be curious to know how many takes that took to get that right i'm guessing one i'm gonna say because one because in the subsequent shots in the movie you can still see that wall with that the pattern same spray yeah. i'm like they got they had one shot at that yeah. and did it probably on the first right it's like whatever we get that's what we got to go with yeah they did well yeah it's a good shot but then we find out uh shortly thereafter you know a woman walks in the door it looks like Anne, and peter the killer strikes her on the back of the head and kills her and it's that moment he's like oh my god i've killed Anne." And we find out that it's Peter Neal is the killer. So, I mean, that's like the big shock moment in the, the movie that our protagonist, who we've been with this entire time, actually is, <laughs> you know, the killer. And then he's, you know, relieved, I guess, to find out that he actually killed uh, uh, the, the uh, female the, inspector. Yeah. Where everybody looks the same in this movie. I was saying that earlier, but, you know, it's like, I don't know if it's a theme or something, but it's like that you have doubles. Yeah, it can't be an accident to be that close in what they look like and what they're wearing. Yeah, well, at the end, when he freaks out about that, that's when I kind of realize, like, oh, well, boy, they've been setting that up all along. Mm -hmm. Right. When you had mentioned that the suits were close and when he got a phone call across the street and um, he was standing by the window with his assistant Anna across from him. The person across the street looking in said, you know, I see you standing there with a woman. And so the inspector, female inspector, takes Anne's place and she can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. So it's that's, like they kind of allude true. to that throughout the movie. Um, just, I think, so that the ending will pay off. It's possible. that You know, I mean, because the other thing is that you have the duality of you know you've got two killers who are mirrors kind of of themselves you have the guy who writes the you know um you know they mirrors i guess 
one thinks about killing people and the other one actually does what the first one thinks. Mm. So maybe that's a one person. They form one part of a different sides of, and so then the cop is like the double of Peter Neal because he's the actual inspector. Right. He's like, and even mentions that at some point in the movie, it's just like, I still have to turn over dead bodies at Mm -hmm. some point. It's like, we're both investigating, but I have to do this. So he does mention that too. Yeah. And at the end, Peter Neal says that this whole thing, like he basically, he mentions a couple of times that, you know, he, when we are with him when mm-hmm. he's still a protagonist, he says he's trying to solve the, the movie, the case by working out the plot of a book. Yes. And then later when he's actually killed people, he says, it, I laid it out just like the plot of a book, a book, you know, <laughs> it's like, so he is living a story. He yeah. made a story come to life you know, for all intents and purposes, but he was caught because of, uh, you know, he, he thought he killed Anne, who he actually does have some real feeling for, I think. Apparently. Yes. I mean, they've been together for what, six years, they say six, yeah. six years. We never spent a night together. Yeah. But so, again, yeah. I mean, their closeness gets mentioned kind of throughout, but you know, it's like he asked her to stay for a nightcap and mm-hmm. you can kind of see that he's kind he of her. feeling the waters but she's keeping it professional. And, you know, at one point she's talking to herself, kind of making fun of him a little bit, you know? Mm. Well, the only person that he kills, well, I get the, imp- well, he does, he kills the detective, I guess, because he has to at the end. And he seems like he's about to kill Anne at the end because he has to. And he's and, killed John Saxon. Well, yeah, but he killed John Saxon and like, those were his targets. Yes. John, Saxon, John Saxon and Jane and, and were Jane. his targets. He kills Gianni, but as you're watching this the second time around, I'm like, Gianni just keeps like, you know, after the first time, he's go like, home, I don't, I, yeah, I didn't see anything. He's like, you're a good kid, go home. And then the second time, it's like, I know there's something that I missed at that house. Right. And it was like, he's he looks at him kind of weird. And the third time, he's like, okay, you're leaving. I'm going to go back to that house because I know there's something that I saw or heard there that is going to crack this case. And then at that point, it's like, that's you gotta take yeah. care of that's a stupid move in the movie it's like kind of first of all the killer's still like out there like why would you go back to that mm-hmm. place by yourself yeah and yeah he pays for it <laughs> choked in the car I, and, found, oh. I found that kind of ironic that you know in tenebrae johnny saw something that he thought would crack the case um, which is kind of a parallel to uh, Red. Deep Red. Thank yeah. you, Deep Red, where same thing happened. The protagonist saw something that he thought would, you know, kind of solve this whole thing, and yet it, the roles kind of get switched. The one, you know, becomes the hero for it and solves it, yeah. and the other one <laughs> gets, yeah, gets killed. killed. Yeah. yeah, It's a smart inversion, I guess. I mean, that's how, you know... As an artist, I guess, as you try to, you know, you're doing basically the same, you're working in the same genre. So there's rules and limits, but somehow he figures out a way to like twist them just right. a Move little them bit. a little bit. So it's like, oh, this is a new thing. You can't say that Tenebrae is a remake of Deep Red or Bird yeah. with the Crystal Plumage or uh, Four Flies in Grey Velvet. And I haven't seen Cat and Ninetales, so uh-huh. I don't know. But uh, even when we think they're dead, they're not dead. Yeah, and it has a shot uh, where, you know, the killer is revealed to be standing directly well, behind a person right. who's standing in the foreground. I mean, who first ducks of all, out a shot right. and first, they're there. Like, uh, uh, Peter, like, uh, you know, he, he's found out, like, he's the killer, 
and you know they're like the 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 police officer's going to arrest him, and like out of nowhere he's like he's got the blade. And he turns around, he's like, ah, and he's freaking out, cutting his own throat, blood spurting everywhere. And he falls to the ground dead. And everyone's like, all right, it's over. <laughs> like the cop immediately goes to the phone. He's like, no, it's done. Let's go to the car. Yeah. Where they have a bit Don't of check a- for a pulse rate. Yeah, no, no, no. He's dead. He cut his own throat. Yeah. Why would you check? He's got a special effects uh, a knife. Apparently, they go to the car, have a conversation that the exposition scene, which kind of explains like, well, why would he do this? Because he's explaining to a hysterical woman, Anne. And then he's like, hmm. I should go back inside. Why did you go back inside? Is yeah, that, right? that makes I I, I need to be there for the police. Like it feels like, but he's the like the police. He's still a cop. Like he's the poli- like he's not going to leave. He's the cop on scene. Like he's going to go there and wait because he's called in backup. He's like, yeah, mm-hmm. this happened. So he's going to go back in well, there and wait for people to show up. You know, because you know they well, got to check the scene and everything. Apparently, it doesn't work as well as they intended. I thought that it worked pretty well the first time I saw it because the. Um, the actor sells it. He he plays it like, oh, shit, I forgot something. You wait here. He doesn't say that, but it's in right. the, the performance. You wait here. I'm going to go and check on something inside. But yeah, on watching this movie multiple times, I can't figure out why he's actually going back in there. No. But he finds that Peter Neal is still alive. And then the shot happens. The only reason yeah. I want to point out this shot is because Brian De Palma ripped the shot off like wholesale As in Raising Cain. Um, but he, uh, I think because it was invented in Tenebrae, the, the the shot where somebody is revealed standing behind another person when they duck out of the, yeah. <clears throat> out of the frame. That's your, that's your, that's our advice to you. Find shots and stuff that, that you like that the modern, like the mass American audience has, probably hasn't seen and steal from them. Right. That's why you look like a genius. <laughs> well, it's De Palma like, ah. also had a history of cribbing from Alfred Hitchcock. Sure. And, like direct, you know, lifts and stuff like that. But hey, if you're gonna. I know uh, Argento said something to the effect of like, you know, De Palma is an important filmmaker. And if he borrows from me, like, you know, that's uh, that's okay. Um, all right. So really quickly before, I don't know if it means anything that, uh, Peter Neal is killed by art. Oh, he really is. He's killed by art, by a sculpture, which we've been staring at for like the past 15 minutes of the movie. Right, That looks sharp. Oh, that was something else I wanted to point out, um, is that in our lot of the five endings, these giallo endings, they, all of the settings are absolutely incredible. Um, and there's always like weird things going on in them. And it's cool that they use those settings for some purpose. You're saying like the locations or the sets or. Yeah, the sets. You know, it's like there's weird artwork. The walls look weird. There's Even in Deep pictures. Red, those pictures, they're, they're all like mm-hmm. vacant eyed people, zombie looking. It's yeah, very weird. They use something in. You know, like the artwork at the end of Tenebrae to Kill Him and the mirror um, and in the bathroom of, I'm getting them all confused now, Deep Red, uh, the mirrored wall. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. they use the weirdness of the sets for some purpose. Well, you know, when you're talking about locations, it's like the thing that strikes me about Tenebrae, which also separates it from the rest of the Giallo films, is the fact that, like, it's shot in Rome, but it goes out of its way, I think, to not look like Rome. Like, I mean, yeah, not specifically. You no. usually go after the um, landmarks. Right. 
Coliseum you know? and whatnot. Yeah, because all the other ones do. At some point, they work in some kind of old uh, architecture, but Deep yeah. Red goes for all this like hyper modern stuff. Mm. The, you know, the lesbians' house is super modern. Uh, Nighthawks and whatnot. In in Deep Red, in Deep Red, yeah, yeah, where he constructs the set of uh, yeah, the Edward Hopper painting. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, like just builds it. You know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, usually I think like uh, don't. Don't torture a duckling, the Lucio Fulci one. That one takes place like in the Italian countryside, which to me, red is really odd because most of them take place in an urban, you know, very chic, right. very fashion forward, right. uh, you know, Italian. Clean lines and edges. Yeah. And, yeah. But you still see like the, you know, the um, the Italian architecture right. right there. I think the other one too is... Uh, uh, it's like the Red Queen kills seven times took place in a castle, which was like, oh, we're in a castle. This we're time. never going to get this quiz right. We should do the quiz, right? <laughs> yeah, right, I think so, so. Here we go. This is Arian versus Sean for dominance in the first ever Giallo movie title. Probably quiz. first and last, I'm going to say. Is it real or is it fake? Is it real or is it Giallo? The iguana with the tongue of fire. Arian. Not, not a Giallo. Sean, mm, not a giallo. You're both wrong. Oh, That's uh, from 1971. We're screwed. That sounds like a um, a B drive-in movie theater title. That's an actual movie. Oh. Okay, there's 15 of these. Next one. The House with the Yellow Carpet, Arian. No. No. That is an what? actual movie from uh, 1983. <laughs> My Heart is an Assassin with One Red Eye, Arian. No. I'm going to say no because they're claiming it's like my heart, like doesn't seem like giallo. All right. You both get a point right. because that is fake. All right. Next one. What are those strange drops of blood doing on Jennifer's body? No. I'm going to say no to that one. You're both wrong. What? It's a real Your movie. Lord. It's also known as the case of the bloody iris. Oh, you can't. Yes, I know cheating. that one. That's the original uh, That's Italian cheating. title. All right. How about a glass eye on a blue satin pillow? Yes. Yes. That is fake. Oh. No damage for you guys. <laughs> Next one. Strip nude for your killer. No. Yes. It is yeah! a movie from 1975. Sean has one point. Uh, the House with the Laughing Windows. Yes. No. Arian gets a point. Uh, that is a movie from 1976. A Blind Lizard in an Empty Grave. Yes. No. It's fake. Sean yeah! gets a point there. Kill the Fatted Calf and Roast It. <laughs> Um, no. I'm going to say yes. It is yeah! a real movie from 1970. Got two. A blood-stained orchid on a silver casket. Yes? Yes. No. no! That's a fake movie. Damn it. Five dolls for an August moon. Yes. No. It is Yay! a movie. So Arian gets a point. 1970. A lizard in a woman's skin. Yes. No. It is no, a movie. That's Lucio Fulci, They like lizards, don't they? I guess. The Black Cat with the Bloodstained Lips. Yes. No. It is not a movie. Ow. Two Nine. more. 
Your vice is a locked room, and only I have the key. No. Well, it seems overly long, but I'll say yes. It is Ooh, a movie from God. 1972, and the perfume of the lady in black. Yes. No. It is God. a movie. Tied. All right, tied. so that's it. So you're tied. Okay, the oh, next to last horrible. one did not have any of these shallow <laughs> thingamajiggies. Your vice is a locked room, and only I have the key. I have always wanted to see that movie because that's got to be one of the greatest titles of all time. But there's no. You animal, can literally just. No that's true. Here, pick six number. words and put them in, and then that's your title for <laughs> yeah, Jallo. That's it. Basically. Well, that's why you got to go to. I think it's jallogenerator.com or something. You just keep wow. hitting that thing. It gives you plots. <laughs> gives you made up directors wow. and all this stuff. It's fantastic. All right, so now it's time to summon Igor. Igor, where art thou, sir? Masters, masters, the mail. I've got the mail. So many letters. Our followers are rising, rising. And thank you for the meal, mail, Igor. You look taller, Igor. Like you wearing lips in your shoes. Like what's going on? First up, we have from Chris Huddleston writes in about our In the Mouth of Madness episode. Mm. He says, I have similar feelings to you guys on this one. I saw it when it originally came out and was pretty disappointed. It seemed like mediocre Carpenter. Then I watched it again a couple of years ago and really enjoyed it. It's not up there with Carpenter's best, but it's certainly better than a vast majority of 90s horror and overlooked, underappreciated flick. <laughs> All right. Thank you for writing in, Chris. Uh, about Critters. Uh, what? Okay, so this came out of the blue, but I did yeah. post a photograph of when we did Critters on our Facebook page, which is where everybody's writing the in. First by one, the way, Critters? Facebook.com slash Saturday Night Freak Show. I'm not actually sure. I posted a picture of the two alien bounty hunters and a fellow named Rob Rob McLeod. Oh, there can be only one. McLeod, there can be only one. Uh, he just wrote, man, those guys are ugly. So we told you, if you write in, we'll read it. And get it? Do you get it? I'm Do you get it? Ugly? Ugg and Lee. Ah, there it is. It's funny. Because the bounty hunters are named. See, it's okay. funny because they're Ugg and Lee. Right, they're yeah. ugly. Yeah. I appreciate your humor, sir. <laughs> if nobody else here does, I like it. Thank you for writing in. It's time for wrap-ups. And so that means we start with Arian. The floor is yours. Well, Tyler Bray, I wouldn't say is his best, but I did enjoy it. Um, even though I kind of nodded off a little bit there for about five minutes. Um, the plot wasn't as well put together as it could have been, but overall, I'd say it's worth a look-see. That's, um, that's me. I'm done. All right. <laughs> so it sounded like a recommendation. Yeah. Tenebrae. Um, I think it's. Uh, mm, um, I think it's. It feels to me like the most straightforward of the Dario Argento movies that I've seen, um, and I think I appreciate it uh, because of that. I like the story of this movie. Um, I really like the visuals of his movies. I think I appreciate those more in his other movies than the storyline. But I think it like. I think it all comes together in this movie. Um, uh, this is the second time I've seen it. Uh, it was a much, I think it was much clearer this time. I don't. I think the last time we watched it was uh, after we made uh, after we made a short film, 
Oh, kind shit. of in the in the uh, genre of this movie okay. called yeah called Slit. Huge. You can find on Amazon Instant Video and other fine places online. Please do watch that. Love um, the gel, the gel genre so much. There it is. I think we watched it right after finishing that one up. Um, and it made to me it made more sense like watching it through this time. And it's pretty like it's a pretty clear movie. Um, um, I liked it because of that. So I definitely recommend it. This is yeah. As far as Argento goes, I like this one a lot. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's been one of those movies like, you know, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Argento and it's weird. You know, it's like I've always been a fan of John Carpenter <laughs> and uh, the more that time goes on, it's like the more I become more and more interested in, in Argento stuff and just his style. It's like and he was around beforehand. And, you know, I think like obviously Carpenter saw Deep Red. Obviously, like for uh, yeah, the first I've watched Deep Red for the first time tonight. Uh, he had to have seen this movie. Like this, it was definitely an influence on his later work. This came out before Halloween. Like Deep Red definitely influenced Carpenter and Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, so I guess, I, but I've always attributed to Argento like his best films to me have always been like Suspiria, um, Deep Red, Tenebrae and opera now three of those are straight up giallo movies i don't really count suspiria i know a lot of people do but it doesn't that doesn't feel like a giallo to me that feels it doesn't like end like a, a giallo supernatural let's put it that way yeah it's yeah. a right? supernatural but tenebrae is like it's increasing in my estimation every time that i see it and i think it, part of it is because what sean said i think it is the one of the most accessible of his movies which is kind of uh, surprising, you know, like, because, you know, for a filmmaker and a genre not entirely known for their uh, coherent storytelling. Yeah. Um, This one is remarkably, I think, easy to follow, even though it is completely misleading you, Mm. you know, uh, down, down, uh, 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 I was going to say primrose path. That makes no sense, but okay. (laughs) So uh, I think, you know, the, the style of it, it's it's uh, ironic, I think, because the movie is uh, brightly lit and very sharp, right? Mm. Where, which is actually in stark contrast to the title, Tenebrae uh, is Latin for shadow, but apparently it is also a um, it's a ceremony conducted at the end of the Latin mass where the candles are extinguished. Yeah. That's the yeah. So oh, I guess going that into, actually makes a lot of sense. Candles are extinguished. Yeah. Lives are extinguished. So I've wondered, like, does that apply? You can read the title as, like, it's ironic because it's a title called Shadow, but the whole movie takes place in bright. In every know, light. Yeah. Or because the lead main character has a shadow personality Ooh. or something. I don't know. But... uh yeah, I think as time goes on, I'm I almost like this maybe more than Deep Red. Um, I mean, it, Deep Red's like the Citizen Kane of Jalo, where you're like, okay, this is the one that kind of uh, put it, set it in stone. But this one's like a better version of it, mm. where this is the one that I think, uh, you know, I think you could show to a neophyte to Jalo movies and say, like, here you go. They're not all like this, but you know, this is a pretty good one. So I would definitely recommend Tenebrae, Tenebrae. Uh, to everyone. And next week, we're going to be watching a movie that's going to be chosen by Travis. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Oh, <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> what, where the fuck did you come from? 
Have you been standing in the corner the whole time? You opened the box. I came. <laughs> Boom. So that's next week on the Saturday Night Freak Show. And until then, we're going to stop paying the electric bill and the basement is going dark. <laughs>